Welcome to episode 43 of the One Last Sketch podcast, a podcast dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm Michael. I'm Marie. And I'm Corey. Step aside, Dune. There's a new Kwisatz Haderach in town because we're talking about Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind by Hayao Miyazaki. Hayao Miyazaki is world famous as an animator. Miyazaki and the studio he co-founded are widely recognized for making beautiful animated films that eschew western storytelling conventions. The first film Miyazaki made that was truly his own was Nausicaa The Valley of the Wind which was released in 1984. But that story started its life as a comic that started in 1982 and Miyazaki inked the last page of the final volume on January 28th 1994. His comics are millennial, I just realized. Now, Miyazaki is justly famous as an animator, and he's not really well known for comics, but it's my contention that Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind might be the most important centerpiece of his work, and kind of important for understanding his work as a whole. Well, it's kind of funny that you'd say that, because he had a whole career in comics before working in film. And even when he started working in film, he still had his hand in comics a little bit. But it's not primarily what he's known for. Well, internationally, I guess, anyway. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people who've watched Nausicaa did not know that there was a comic book, let alone one that had lasted in its inception for 12 years in its serialized Yeah, I mean, I didn't know that, Mm. to be fair. I remember um, we first saw the film number of years ago now and i was doing some research on it online that's how i figured out it was a comic and so that made me want to read the comic because the film was so good mm-hmm. so for this discussion we are going to focus on the comic i mean the film's great i rewatched it mm-hmm. but it's very much a separate work one of the rare cases where you have two things by the same creator And I find that when there is a different media adaptation by the same creator, you end up not having the same discussions about the process of adaptation anymore. Often they're so different. Much like The Princess Bride, both excellent in both forms and both, you know, individual things. And chiefly where the film and the manga differ is in expansiveness. Yeah. The movie takes place over a very limited set of locations. It pulls out a few of the themes of this work and really hones in on them. And it all comes together in a way that works really well for a film. Yeah, for a film that's not like six versions, six editions or a miniseries. (laughs) It's because there's a a lot of junk. Not junk, sorry. There's a lot of plot in this. And... um, Only so many minutes in an animated film. (laughs) Yes, the comic is extremely expansive. (laughs) It takes place over a large geographical area. There are lots of cultures. There are a ton of characters. And this is playing to the strengths of the medium, of course. If you have over a thousand pages of a comic book to work with, you can really go all out with that stuff. While in a film, if you try and jam that much stuff in two hours, it's just confusing. So... 
In both forms, Miyazaki played to the strengths of the medium he was working in. Again, the film is great. I think the comic has a lot more in it for a discussion. So in previous episodes, we have avoided spoiling things too much. And I'm going to structure this episode in a way where we're going to talk about Nausicaa nebulously to begin with, and then we're going to do a deep dive later on. Because yes, I don't feel like many people relatively have read Nausicaa. I think that's accurate. But... <laughs> it's, a, it's a tome, like it's intimidating to look at. It's two hardcovers, giant. We really want to encourage people to read it, so we're going to do that to start off with. I also feel like it deserves the kind of in-depth discussion that other science fiction fantasy books have had on this podcast because it kind of stands in the canon to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think um, a part of the problem with discussing Nausicaa as well is the theme and the plot are so heavily interwoven, you really can't discuss it without getting into spoiler territory. So, I mean, consider yourself forewarned, listeners. <laughs> So what is Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind about? It's about Nausicaa. Well, it's ecological <laughs> science fiction. It's about a lot of things. But to put it briefly, it is a thousand years after a very devastating apocalypse called the Seven Days of Fire. The world has been just covered with toxic sludge as a result of this war. And a forest has sprung up in the areas that were damaged and keeps on growing. In the forest, there is a miasma that humans can't survive in. So where humans were at the pinnacle of science and technology before this work starts, they've now been driven off into various corners of the world and are struggling to survive as this forest keeps on expanding. (laughs) The story focuses on a messianic figure named Nausicaa, who's a princess of the Valley of the Wind, It also focuses very much on two monsters that end up eclipsing much of the story. One is the Omu, which are insectile creatures that are the the guardians of this sea of corruption, which is the name of the forest. The other is the God Warrior, one of the remaining monsters from the Seven Days of Fire that caused all this destruction to begin with, that has been resting for a while and is about to wake up in some form. Mm-hmm. This is the stage setting. <laughs> and there's also a lot of flying things. Mm-hmm. Like, everything is flying all the time. Fuel is never an issue somehow. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing I, I want to point out, um, you mentioned how humans can't go into the forest. That's technically not true. Humans can't go into the forest unaided. Um if they're wearing special breathing masks, they're able to go into the forest. And, you know, there are some people who specialize in surviving there for long periods of time. Uh, but without the mask, it's the kind of thing where you'd be dead in, like, minutes, if not quicker. Yeah, it's said that your your lungs just bleed. It's, like, hemorrhagic immediately. And then you're dead. Um, and it's not a forest of trees. It's a They're all kind of giant fungi of some kind, it seems. Because it's kind of a spore cycle and the miasma appears to be mainly the, the spores of these um fungi what they do i'm sure michael's going to talk about that in a minute but i just want to also put out that the insects aren't insects i think it's just whatever you chose what the translators chose to use but they're um wouldn't meet technically the criteria for the word insect and they look to me more like a crustacean but i get why you'd use the word insect because it's just a little bit like 
better than bug, even though bug is a particular kind of insect, so they're not that either. But that's just me being nitpicky, purely because this is a science fiction, so there is some science that I think is relevant. There are large arthropods. <laughs> I'd go with that. <laughs> yeah, the omu kind of reminded me more of, like, giant caterpillars than anything. I think of, like, crabs. Like, that's that's sort of what I... or, or crab like, pillars. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the horseshoe crabs, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's kind of more what I thought that they'd be like with these really thick shells. And many, many, and many legs. Way more than six. So, yeah. I'd like to start off with some first impressions from when we encountered this work. That's easy for me because I wrote a blog post when I read Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind for the first time. I mostly talked about it as ecological sci-fi and made a lot of comparisons to Dune. Uh, Not only the ecological aspect that they're very focused on natural processes, but also there's a messianic figure. There are big creatures that are integral to the natural processes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They are both very expansive works that take in a lot of themes, but they approach their characters and morality very differently. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, just what's interesting about it is, or about Nausicaa versus Dune, is the messianic figure in Nausicaa arguably fits what a messiah is presented as a lot better. Um, Dune, the messianic figure, is still a military figure. Nausicaa, there are military aspects to it for sure, but it's not like Nausicaa is some great general who's coming out to conquer the world. Mm-hmm. I also considered that Nausicaa's very much a perfect main character. She doesn't make many mistakes. Everything's well considered. Usually this kind of character we'd consider boring, but it turns out if you put a character like that in the right situations... Yeah. I would say until right at the end, she maintains a certain level of naivety. Naivety. Whatever. Um, and I think that's that's related to, to a statement she makes about how she's involved with every individual living thing in wanting all things to ideally live and be able to continue to live to live and not making any kind of larger ecological arguments over like groups surviving beyond others, but that individuals matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's set in the middle of a war, kind of in, 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 in the middle of like a human conflict, but also in other conflicts. Um, so there's a large amount of death and mayhem that happen and tragedy in, in this story. And she's, and the fact that she's always trying to like, um, move against those forces. Uh, there's a sort of a willfulness and a strength that is sort of like um, makes her compelling in because in, she kind of keeps doing it despite the amount of things that keep happening. Um, I think also because people around her comment on how she is kind of nuts for having this outlook. Like it's everyone else is kind of and then it, it, it's initially people have the response of she's um this isn't possible, but then it, it turns to this kind of amazement in terms of what she does do and in terms of the function that she is able to carry out, which you can only do because she has that kind of outlook, even though right at the end, I'd say it kind of changes. What's nice about Nausicaa as a character, um, she's an idealist. And unlike a lot of works where idealists are presented as very naive and you need a realist to kind of break their spirit and show them how the world really works... 
Nausicaa holds to her idealism in some form or other through the entire book, or through the entire story. And her idealism, it, it does cause her trouble. It does create challenges, but it's never presented as a weakness. It's just presented as something that, yes, makes things harder, but that results in far greater benefit for having struggled through. I mean, she's like the ultimate kind of advocate, because it's the kind of story that a person with one person with an idea and motivation can change the world around them in really fundamental ways. And given like the number of people that end up following her lead, even though she's actually not really around them a whole lot, which is kind of, she becomes this mythic figure. She takes up a role of a certain mythos in the story itself. Um, but her, the, the fact that she kind of keeps steadfast in that is what allows some of her ideals to come to pass. I'd say. Well, Nausicaa's superpower is that she makes people want to be better than they are. <laughs> yeah, like she's basically just an inspirational figure. I mean, I mean, she has limited telepathy, but none of that really comes to play within the greater scheme of the story and her impact on others around mm -hmm. her. Like, she needs to have other people doing things on her behalf in order to have the effect that she wants at any given point. And it's not just, like, people following a figure. Like, it's a lot of, like, close friends and, um... I was gonna say family, but it might not be totally accurate, depending on how you want to construct family. But uh, it is a story of, like, the power of love overcomes other things because it's people who really care about her or that are motivated to act for her. And that's what, you know, in the end carries the day. Because people are all in the, like, final position because they love Nausicaa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that's why. Again, <laughs> it's... I, I know we're not talking about Miyazaki's films, but, like, it, it is very much a typical Miyazaki story. Mm -hmm. um, you can see a lot of things that kind of bleed into his later work are present in Nausicaa. And that's not a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination. It's... It's very much a story that rejects kind of set tropes about what a hero needs to be or what a hero needs to do. It's kind of story that acknowledges that, you know, there is a middle ground and it's not easy to get to, but it can be reached. And arguably, if you do, if you're willing to put in the effort to get there, it's to everyone's greater benefit than just kind of holding to one side. I wouldn't say she's a, she's a middle ground. She's a strong pacifist the whole way through. Um, and I, even though the, I guess her, like, the final act, act of the, like, narrative is not necessarily a pacifist action, it's kind of, um, yeah, no, I'd say she's pretty radically on the, on the, on her values, and the, those would not be a middle ground at all. She, she, like, forces people to have to talk to each other, so okay. they have to have, like, conversations and negotiations. Yeah, so but I don't think she has occupies any kind of central position. Sorry, maybe that's a better <laughs> way of putting it. Sorry, it's the notion that Nausicaa is able to get people to communicate rather than to hold on to conflict. I definitely agree that the fingerprints of Nausicaa are all over subsequent works from Hayao Miyazaki. Mm -hmm. And I had the impression that this comic ended up being a testing ground for a lot of ideas, but also because it's expressed as the first place these appear, it ends up being maybe the clearest thesis statement mm -hmm. on any of these topics that Miyazaki touches mm -hmm. on. Now, there were a couple of things from when I first read Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind 
that I wrote in that blog post that I don't agree with anymore. One, I had some criticisms of the artwork as characters looking and being framed as if they were in an animated film, so I would sometimes find it hard to tell them apart. Uh, On reread, this all looks like a deliberate style choice to me, and I came to appreciate the technical merits of Nausicaa quite a bit more on the second time through. My other point I made back then was that I had found the messages to be simple but clearly expressed and worth saying. And on rereading this work, I don't think the messages of Nausicaa are simple at all. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I mean, uh, didn't read your blog post, Mike, but, uh, yeah. Well, that's why I've summarized it here, because I don't expect anyone to go back to it. I think um, one thing I I would argue Nausicaa does very well is acknowledges the complexity of the ideas it's talking about. It, It doesn't it doesn't try to simplify them. I mean, Nausicaa herself may fall into the trap a few times, but the work overall, you know, realize it's not dealing with simple things and it doesn't give simple answers. Like, I mean, if I keep circling around vaguely, at some point we might get more into like just spoiling this, but for right now, the final act, I would say is not necessarily the correct choice. And I'm still left at the end of the story going, I don't know if that was the best thing to do in this situation, but it was done. So, I and I think the fact that it's not, there isn't a perfect solution at the end is, like, because the whole thing is imperfect, like, of people trying. And I think even that last action is, like, just the ultimate of that. And, and I'll <laughs> say that... Um the ending, the choice that's made is either very imperfect and completely, or sorry, the ending choice is either flat out wrong or the best possible choice, depending on what you choose to value. Mm-hmm. Um, the story presents different points that's like, okay, do you value this or do you value this or do you value this? And with all of these in mind, here's the choice that gets made. Now, according to which set of values, is it the correct choice? Mm. If I had to pick up one word to summarize Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, it is thoughtful. <laughs> yeah. And that's a word I often apply to everything by Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm-hmm. I think Nausicaa is in that tradition mm-hmm. of thought and science fiction for mm-hmm. sure. I don't um, I don't know how widely Le Guin is translated into Japanese, but I think Miyazaki is a fan of her work. Or was, yeah, he's still... He's a fan of Earthsea, for right. sure. And... Uh, but that was the movie he didn't get a chance no, that was the movie at the time. And we all know how yeah, that turns yeah. His son ended up making it, and it's the one Studio Ghibli movie that's considered bad. I think one of the things, like, one of the first things I compared this to was Akira. And uh, the Akira did not fare well in that comparison. Because I think Akira's terribly drawn, actually. I have a hard time understanding what's going on in, in the panels, and just with the technical level and the action. Someday we might talk about Akira, but um, Nausicaa. I thought what it, what I thought it was more like um, Asterix, where as you uh, um, go from panel to panel, it's very easy to tell what movements have been made and what action has happened, even in complex things like a sword fight or something where where camera angles have changed. Even it's it's actually very easy to pan through. And even though um, 
reading the manga we're 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 reading opposite the way we read the text um in the because in the, with the english translation it still actually kind of keeps the flow pretty mm. well um something and i thought that it was very like a storyboard in its style be, and i think that that's why it translates that nicely and the other thing that i noticed is this isn't always the case because when i read a manga that retains the um sound effects in the Japanese script, because it's kind of part of the picture. Um, I don't always know what those mean, but I actually found that I was able to pretty well guess, and a couple of the times I looked at the translations of what those sounds were, and I was like, yeah, the way those words looked was exactly what I thought that sound probably was, and given the context. So I think it gives a really good sort of sensory experience of going into the world, like having the miasma like being the suffocating feature around and like just a lot of different details so beautifully drawn and it carries you through in terms of the medium i find it kind of interesting that you bring up akira actually because i think it could be argued that the two works do actually touch on not all of but some of the same themes but they do it in such radically different ways (laughs) Um, akira is very pessimistic where nausicaa despite actually having some pessimistic moments in the narrative, is more of an optimistic work. I mean, that's what happens when an idealist who ultimately does some things gets is your main character, and in Akira there's no central figure like Nausicaa. This is not about Akira. What are, what's your impressions of Nausicaa, <laughs> Corey? <laughs> um, Nausicaa is a beautiful piece. It is, it is very complex, but at no point is it hard to follow if that makes sense. Like, it, it it doesn't shy away from dealing with difficult things, but it handles them in such a way where you can always tell what they're talking about and what's happening. And I, I think there is definitely a lot of skill and craft there in how the story is put together. And that, that's on all levels, the writing, the drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some beautiful illustrations, and there's some horrifying illustrations, but because it's Miyazaki drawing them, even the things that look horrifying have a certain beauty to them. For a serialized work that came out over the span of 12 years, Nausicaa is not like a lot of other manga. It is not episodic in any way. I found it was a very tightly... I mean, it's an expansive story, but within being expansive, it's very tightly constructed. Yeah. The artwork is also just as dense as the story, I find. That's where it differs from a lot of other manga is that there is so much detail within any given panel, and I think this is what led to my slightly negative impression the first time I read it, is that I had read a bunch of other manga before reading it, and I was used to there being a very clear focus on one action or one character. And Miyazaki seemed to take more of a approach of French comics at the time of just putting as much detail and action into one panel as possible. It's just, it's, Which is why you have to read it in its current edition form of having giant pages. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, I always forget it was published in serial originally. Because when you read it, especially if you're reading it in a, um, an anthology volume like I have, it does not read like a serialized publication. It very much reads like a continuing story. This is where actually I was thinking it was a lot like Bone. Because the drawing style doesn't like have that change throughout it so much like people are pretty well drawn the same way at the end as they were at the beginning and the skill is kind of the same throughout and you get the sense that the plot was thought out 
in its, at least in its large strokes, but probably in its small ones pretty well ahead of time because it's just so kind of complete. Because when I picked this up, I was, uh, and I, when, my first feeling when I opened it, and as I think probably the complexity of the panel, I was like, do I really feel like reading this? And then I was like, well, I'll give it a couple pages. And then half a book later, I was like, I should go to bed. <laughs> so the only negative I'd really have about it is that since it's probably mainly available in the anthology form, I don't know that you could get it in like a smaller, I don't know if it's published in any smaller volumes at all. I don't think it is. Um, it does. It was initially, it was initially released in seven volumes. Yeah, uh, that might. So those were the smaller. I, I think that might be better if you can get your hands on it. Cause the, the two volume edition kills your legs. It's just like reading the far side or Calvin and Hobbes yeah. <laughs> anthologies. They are just too big and there's they're just the wrong size to be able to like prop up comfortably. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember the first time I read it, um, was very shortly after watching the film. So the first time I read it, I was shocked, not in a bad way, but just kind of shocked by how much more expansive it was than the film and how much more it did than the film. And then rereading it in preparation for this episode, which was nice because it's been several years since I've watched the movie now, I, I was able to appreciate the comic more on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to go back to the artwork comic comment, I mean, the consistency of the artwork... Miyazaki was an animator, and if you're an animator, one of the important things to do is to stay on model. Yeah. Well, no, he wasn't—he wasn't just an animator. Um, he, like I said, he was a manga artist. He had been working in comics and, to some extent, film for years before this came out. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't a case of his drawing improved throughout writing it. It was a case of he was already a professional when mm-hmm. he did it. And it shows. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> beautiful. Despite the complexity, I'd say it's always framed in such a way that you can, once you're kind of like into it, you can always tell what the foreground and what the action and the focal point of the panel is, and it's not hard to like differentiate. And then you can also look at all the backgrounds and see all the nice detail going on in there too. So, oh, you can spend hours just looking at one page. Yeah. Of Nausicaa, and I know I've gone through and just uh, done studies of various bits of Nausicaa, just going like trying to break down how this action was framed mm-hmm. <laughs> or how this character is moving. Uh, yeah, you can get lost in it. Mm-hmm. You can get lost in a lot of things. Like that first sword fight in Nausicaa. The first sword fight, it's like, ooh, yeah, that that was great. <laughs> I mean, since rereading it, I have been thinking about it near constantly since then. I cannot get it out of my head. Uh, I did want to dive briefly into the visual style, which we've already been talking about in Nausicaa, and its influence. And this mainly comes down to the film, but Nausicaa kind of spawned an entire genre of science fiction in Japan. And its influence, I don't think, might mainly come from Nausicaa so much as Final Fantasy. The video game has picked up on a lot of stuff that was in Nausicaa, and a lot of things since then have been inspired by Final Fantasy. Mm. So that visual look of having those ostrich creatures, the horse claws... I was, I was like... Chocobos. I was like, it's chocobos! <laughs> this is great! <laughs> The kind of post-apocalyptic setting where people have technology, but they can't—they don't really have the skills to fix it much or create their own things. They're just maintaining these ancient 
machines that have bits and pieces that have been bolted on them and they've been repaired over the course of 500 years or whatever. Mm. That look is kind of pervasive throughout Japanese animation and comics through the 80s and the 90s. Mm And I don't know about you guys, but when I was reading Nausicaa, I kind of got the impression that this story and setting are something that have been uh, winding around inside of Miyazaki's head for decades, maybe, before he actually started working on it. Decades before and decades since. Um, Like we said, this kind of sets the prototype for a lot of his other works. Like, I I remember... um, there's one panel where there's a herd of Omu and you just see like miles and miles of them moving through the forest. And pretty much that exact same panel appears in Princess Mononoke. But instead Mm -hmm. of a polluted forest and giant insects, it's a healthy forest and giant boars. Mm -hmm. Um, There's another character who, again, to draw a Mononoke parallel, there's there's a male character who looks exactly like Ashitaka. Um, one of the protagonists in Princess Mononoke. Like, so it, it's very much something mm-hmm. that I think was in his head before and stayed with him for years after. Mm-hmm. Well, and the way she talks to the Omu um, is very very much to me, it was actually reminded me of at the beginning of Mononoke as they're talking to the boar god. Yeah. Um, the, like the kind of, the sort of formal tone and discussion had, I was like, I, I was like, oh, that's, that really reminded me of that initial part. Yeah. And we've been circling around this about where we think Nausicaa sits in Miyazaki's oeuvre, and I think we've come to a definitive answer already. I mean, we've been circling because in Nausicaa, you could just keep circling mm. permanently. I don't know how everything <laughs> keeps flying. There, at no point does anyone ever fuel anything. And I was like, I don't know. Like, it's just ancient technology that works. It must all be like radioactive or something. Like, I don't know. I, I remember. Um, <laughs> so we're just doing the same thing. <laughs> doing a bit of research on this. There are a lot of critics who consider this to be his magnum opus. Mm-hmm. Like, not any of his films, not anything he's done since, not anything he did before. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, the comic, is his big work. Like, for a mm-hmm. lot of critics, this is it. It gives him the space to express things that you just wouldn't be able to say on film. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can say the opposite for stuff on film. Like, there are scenes in the Nausicaa movie, like the sand falling through the forest, that could only be expressed mm-hmm. through animation are absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. But you're still limited to two hours of runtime before people start getting a bit annoyed that they're stuck in their theater seat without an intermission. Yeah. While... Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind lets you over the course of over a thousand pages really start burrowing down into the various themes that his movies only can touch on within their runtimes. This comic lets him explore them in depth and to show various facets of every issue that he's going through. Like every angle he has the space to explore that here. I feel like I mean, that's really the best thing you could say in favor of reading Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, is you get a level of thematic depth mm-hmm. well, I think that it's not really possible outside of this medium. I, I think that's the strength of literature, whether it's traditional or graphic form um, over film, is I think it is possible to get the degree of examination of these issues in film, but literally only a single one of them per movie. Like, you're not going to take 
10 different things and do deep dives into them in two hours. You can do a deep dive into one, maybe two topics in a film. And I mean, anything beyond that is really pushing it. So like, like you said, that's the strength of, the, of, of this work is because of its length, it, it has the freedom to do that. I think one of the things too is we talked about how it's and it's an entire work in the in the manga, and it seems complete and reads from start to end as as though it was one thing. And the film itself is also an entire work; it's one thing. Because I wouldn't see, I don't, I do not know that Miyazaki's ever done anything in a um, like an anime series, and I don't know that Nausicaa. Part of me just doesn't like it when people try to adapt things <laughs> that are already good. We, we, we're, we're, we're very much that kind of a people with that opinion. But I don't know that it would work as so well as a serialized anime. Because for it to be... you Like, where you would put the pause points in, it's not like there's necessarily complete shorter arcs that are short enough to really go into episodes. Maybe something like uh, Sherlock, where it's like a three-part miniseries, mm-hmm. like, and you try to do each book, but I still think they're pretty long. And I think there's a sort of a wisdom in like being like, we maybe just shouldn't break up this thing that works really well in its whole form. I know it came out as a serial, and that's just a feature publication. Um, it's probably not best enjoyed in that serial way, way, though. So, as you all gathered, we recommend Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, Read it. You can come back later to listen to the rest of this podcast because now we're going to dive into spoilers. Spoilers! The shit out of this! Yeah. I've been warned. Yeah. Yeah, this is a bit where we say everything that happens. Yeah, we could circle around it and try and talk about it on terms where we don't spoil anything. But Nausicaa deserves to have. Uh, entire thesis papers written yeah. on it, frankly. Yeah. Now we're going to get super excited because we're going to talk about the details that we care about, so, yeah. <laughs> so let's all dive into that. Alright, do you have a plot summary or are we just going to okay. try to do this, like, al fresco? Uh, I just have some various nebulous areas. We're not going to just march through the plot. Yeah, because again, come back five hours like later. Five hours. <laughs> As you say, what, what, what was it we were just saying about two-hour film length? Yeah, so a lot of stuff happens in this. But go for it, Mike, because you actually planned something. Well, we already talked a lot about Nausicaa as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is another very important character mm-hmm. in the manga who doesn't She's in the movie. She's a completely different character in the movie, I think. But Princess Kushana, who is my favorite character. She's just amazing. (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) Princess Kushana is kind of the closest thing the movie has to a villain. But if you read the comic, she's not a villain. She is one of the protagonists. Yeah, she's she's just great. Oh, my God. She reminds me of, if we're going to keep drawing parallels to his other work, she reminds me of the older female uh, character in Princess Mononoke, the one... Lady of Yes! Yes. She's the same kind of, like, this is what the world is like, and here's the kind of shit you need to do, and she's good at it. So what I love is that, like, is very good at, you know, the Wind Rider kindness, telepathy, also sticking to her guns. Princess Kashana is also really good at, like, tactics, inspiring people towards a very different kind of end, you know, making war. Surviving in, like, uh, I mean, she's she's a, a royalty within the Torumekian Empire, and all of her family and brothers, are they're all trying to kill each other. 
and she and and they are also at war with the Dorok Empire. So like that's the background going on. And so she, she's not dead, and her her mother I think is alive but insane somewhere. Well, um, K- Kushana <laughs> is yeah. in many ways, but Nausicaa is not. Mm-hmm. Um, Nausicaa is like as we've said numerous times now. Nausicaa is a messianic figure. Nausicaa is not a leader. She's able to inspire people, but she's not able to do anything with them on that individual level. Mm-hmm. Kushana is. She is... On the mass level, you mean. Or, sorry, on the mass <laughs> level, yeah. yeah. Kushana is very much a leader. Yeah. Um, you know, she's trained this elite army. Every single one of her men absolutely adores her and is willing to put down their lives for her. Many of them do. I mean, she also gives, like, basic respect back. Like, that's mm-hmm. the other thing, is that... Even though, like, she's able to, like, survive in the scheming and cutthroat world that she does live in, she's not a horrible person, (laughs) like, necessarily. She, she's, I think she says it somewhere in the middle of the second book to the, um, older, to the emperor, um, the Dorak Emperor, that she's, like, inevitable, like, she's so bloodstained, basically, she's like, there's no redemption. The interesting thing being that she has that view solid throughout the whole book and ultimately though at the at the end like she ends up realizing that that's not actually true Mm -hmm. she does not stick with that and that's why she ends up being the actual leader of the of the world afterwards because she's better suited to that than nausicaa nausicaa would never be very good at that nausicaa would never want that either because those are hard decisions to make but at the same time, the symbolic end of how she take, takes on the, the regent role. Like, yeah, so like it, the... It, it, she's the last member, at the end of it, she's the last member of the royal family. Um, so everyone's like, oh, you're, you're the king or queen now. And she's like, no, I'm the regent. I, I, I'm not going to be the monarch. What's the, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, she, she didn't actually hold the throne. She's holding it in, in waiting. Yeah. Technically. Regent. She's she's that. She's that. And I think that just and that was to the end of her reign. She never took it because she realized that that wasn't actually what the world needs. Mm -hmm. So that's a real those two characters because they talk. There's a point at the beginning, and you don't actually see what they say to each other, which I think was a really cool choice. Right after that initial like meet sword fight thing, Nausicaa and um, Kashana have a discussion. Off see off camera, and it's clear that they like had some kind of recognition or something with each other. Um, well, there's a mutual it, respect between them. Yeah, but kind of I think more of that because they apparently talked for a very long time, um, and I think it's so wise that we didn't see that because it's more like you sort of get informed about the way that Nausicaa and Kashana behave later. Like it kind of shows the kind of discussion they probably had. Um, like with just the sort of trust that they have in each other and that kind of thing. And I love that the other major character is also female in this. Like this is a great work for having strong female characters who are not like great because they're female, but they just also happen to be female. So Kushana, so I, Kushana is another character type that appears in Miyazaki's work. Although the word type is a bit misleading. Um, he, He has many character kind of styles that get repeated, but none of those characters ever comes across as a type. They're always an interesting person in their own right. It's just there are certain traits that they share. Um, In Kishana's case, she is the strong female leader, Um, which again, we see with Lady Eboshi and Princess Mononoke. 
but again, both of those characters, like I said, they're not types. They are very much people. They're intelligent. They have concerns. They have things that they're passionate about, things that they're afraid of. And, and they work often within the confines that are forced on them, and they try to break those confines, but they also try to do different new things that can advance their position. Um, at the same time, though, it's not like they're trying to advance their position at any cost. They have people around them who they do care about and feel responsibility to. Like, Kushana, at the beginning of the narrative, has no qualms about stepping over the bodies of her own brothers. But if you ask her to sacrifice even one of her soldiers, she feels it very personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's loyal. Yeah, she, she's loyal to those who are loyal to her. Yeah. So yeah, we, we went on a huge tangent about one character. This is going to take forever. But <laughs> what's the next one, Mike? <laughs> no, I was going to concentrate on Kushana because she is mm-hmm. the main case for the effect that Nausicaa has on people. Mm-hmm. And she's the character who has the closest relationship with Nausicaa, even though they're not actually together for that long yeah. within the narrative. They barely see each other. And Kushana is... Mm-hmm is just fascinating because just in terms of sheer development Mm -hmm. she gets the most Mm -hmm. and you get the sense at the beginning she was going to go down a very nihilistic awful path Mm -hmm. but through her encounters with Nausicaa and the people who have also been affected by Nausicaa she comes to realizations that she doesn't have to do that. Well, this is the wonderful thing about um, Miyazaki's work in general, is he very seldom writes flat-out villains. Um, Even his characters who kind of come across as villains are still human beings. They're still people. And um, in Kushana's case, at the beginning of the story, she's very much set up to fulfill the role of villain. You can see it very clearly. It's like, oh yeah, this is the villain. This is the one who's going to be doing all the bad stuff. And the narrative is able to take that expectation and completely flip it on its head. And not only does she grow to become very much a protagonist, but just somebody you legitimately like. Mm-hmm. Like, I started rooting for her pretty early. Um, and, and she has a great comment, because uh, she, she, I think, officially marries the, like, Darok Emperor. And she has this good... Well, they're engaged. Yeah, well, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever happens. And then... Well, one-sided engagement, yeah. we'll put it that way. But, I mean, she's sort of stuck in that situation. But she, I, lo- I love her, you know, her tood the whole way through. Because she says this great thing. She's like, oh, you think you could walk into the pit of vipers? <laughs> to him? Which she, I, I'm like, that's a great line. She definitely has sass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, she is very sassy when she needs to be. Yeah, it's a pretty good moment when she walks in, having killed, like, all the guards that were watching her, and he's like, hey, how about we get engaged? And she's like, if you dare, we can do that. Fine, whatever. <laughs> Even though she is, like, you, yeah. you know, stuck. She couldn't, in, in that, she's, she's not actually in the position of authority, but, oh, she's gonna go down <laughs> that way, so. <laughs> uh. You brought up my favorite moments in the entire comic. Yeah. <laughs> which is Kushana's rampage when she wakes up in the Doric Emperor's ship and just starts killing people. (laughs) Uh, But we can place that against another moment that I also found profoundly affecting and beautiful, (laughs) which is when she's been going after her, her arch nemesis brother for all this time. We know he's coming. And in the end, he basically dies in an accident. Mm-hmm. It's entirely outside of her control that this happens. His ship is just swarmed by the insectile creatures. And 
she realizes, I don't feel the satisfaction I thought I would feel. And that's when she has to, like, <laughs> embrace her men. And then she talks later that she was singing because the insects don't attack you if you don't have the rage within you, like, mm-hmm. or that kind of thing. If you're, like, at peace and calm, they don't. And she's, and she, and that's what she says afterwards. And that's about as long as I can be like Nausicaa. <laughs> she literally says that. She's like, I am not becoming Nausicaa. But in that moment, it was necessary. And I, and I think that whole, like, bolstering down while those while that insect attack occurred was um, her moment of change, her big one. I yeah, think. Well, well, one beautiful thing about Kushana's arc, especially in relation to Nausicaa, and this is a great feature of the work in general, is Nausicaa never forces people like the narrative never has people forced to be like Nausicaa. Nausicaa doesn't force them to embrace her values. She argues for her values. She argues very passionately and very strongly and tries to share them. But ultimately the power she has is not to convince them and completely convert them. It's to bring out the best aspects of people. And Nausicaa... And, and, sorry, just to finish. she very that, That's very much what happens with Kishana. Because Kishana has, at the, at the beginning of the narrative, this, like, as we said, a very cynical, bordering on nihilistic outlook. Nausicaa is able to bring the best qualities out of her, though, and make her an even stronger, better person than she would have been. And the one thing that's sort of funny about Nausicaa is because she's so inspiring, but she's constantly renegade. Like, she's constantly doing her own individual thing and trying to fix it herself. Like, that would be a, 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 flaw, a kind of a flaw that mm-hmm. Nausicaa has. She's always, like, taking mm-hmm. off. Not really thinking about it and just res- and just kind of responding. It works out because there's lots of other features in the story that let it happen. Um, well, that are and that she does as well. But, yeah. One interesting point about Nausicaa as well, um, as we've mentioned several times, Nausicaa is a messianic figure. Several characters in the story, especially those who kind of are the villains of the narrative, accuse her of thinking she's she is a, a messiah. At no point does Nausicaa claim to be a messiah. At no point does she say she wants to be. It's always a title that's ascribed to her. Mm-hmm. And it, part of the reason I think that it works for her, it works that she is in fact a, mess, a messianic figure, is because she is trying to confront the problems. But she also does have the table flipping part. Yeah, like she, she <laughs> is, she is trying to take the pain of the world on herself, but she's actually trying to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah. often to her detriment, like there are times when that backfires horribly and she suffers greatly for it, mm-hmm. but she is still willing to be the one who suffers to try to do what's right for everyone mm-hmm. or for as many as she can, at least. Arguably at the very end of the narrative, Kushana is more of an inspirational figure than Nausicaa mm-hmm. because at the very end, Nausicaa basically absconds. Mm-hmm of those kinds of responsibilities and it's up to the people that she influenced to carry on the torch. Well, and she was she was there for the conflict in the moment cuz there's a bit I think where Nausicaa, I can't remember what it is or if it's even Nausicaa or if it's some of the um other people from the Valley of the Wind talking about going home after. And I was like, "No, nah, this is like a Frodo thing. You you're too changed to go home." And it sort of says at the end that she might have gone back, mm-hmm. but I was like, I, I don't think she did. <laughs> I don't think she, it would have been possible for Nausicaa to go home well, like, like, at um, the end of all this. <laughs> like many messiah narratives, or at least well-done ones, like especially the kind you typically see in religion, the, a, messi- a messianic figure, it's not their job to actually fix everything. 
it's effectively their job to give you the tools to fix it yourself, and it's up to the people to then carry on what they've learned. Whether or not they do is a different story. But, like, I, I think there are, as long as we're talking messianic figures, like, biblical parallels, at no point in the New Testament does Jesus go, like, snap his fingers and suddenly everything is fixed, right? Whether you interpret it as history or as literature, the Bible does not end with a perfect solution. It ends with people being given the tools to fix the world themselves, right? And Nausicaa is very much the same kind of thing. Yeah. Earlier we had touched on Kushana as being a possible villain and how Miyazaki doesn't really ever have a space of an irredeemable villain. Mm -hmm. The closest we have is the emperor of the Doric principalities, who, as far as I can tell, is just so far gone into nihilism at that point that he's pitiable as opposed to being scary in any way or a legitimate threat to the ideas in the narrative. He's just... Yeah, I once read yeah. <laughs> um, I once read a summary of Miyazaki's work talking about how all of his villains I forget the exact phrasing, but basically the basic concept is that all of his villains have their villainy come from what are in Buddhism considered to be the roots of evil. So greed, hatred, or delusion. There's always a motivation there that you can understand. They're greedy, they're delusional, they hate someone, they want to take it out on them. Um but like you said, those are all things that most of them can be redeemed. The villains can either be redeemed from those traits, or they just fall so far into them as to stop being villainous and just become objects of pity. I think he's, because he's just, he, he starts, when he goes out, initially you think, oh god, this is going to be really bad. But he actually burns out pretty quickly mm-hmm. in terms of his effect on the world. And I think, because I think the like the, one of the core themes is that as long as you are going to keep trying and you're working to try, you will have some effect on the world. Mm-hmm. But this was a person who was trying nothing, really, other than to like allow mayhem to happen, which is not technically, I think, in Miyazaki's view, like an actual act, mm-hmm. um, well, as far as I can tell. The other aspect of that, too, is the Emperor's younger brother mm-hmm. is one of the first villainous characters introduced. And when he's introduced, he's, he's kind of painted as, an, oh, you know, he's pure evil. Nausicaa redeems him. Mm-hmm. Like, he actually, he's only there for, like, the first half of the narrative, if that. And when he finally leaves, Nausicaa's actually been able to help him reach a point of peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the idea behind the high priest, who's the Holy Emperor's brother, is that when he went to one of those, um, basically, across the world, there are these little enclaves that are hidden where they keep the knowledge of the world for later mm-hmm. on. He went to one of these, which gave him the power to go out and try and change the world for a better place, which is what the high priest wanted to do when he started. He lost his spirit, though, at some point. Yeah, because there's that comment from that force creature that keeps one of those Mm -hmm. places of knowledge that he went out idealistic, but he didn't. He was uh, disappointed with the stupidity of the peasants, is I think what it was, and became like enraged at that. Yeah, and, um, and I think yeah. therein is one of the challenges that confronts Nausicaa that she is able to overcome, mm-hmm. or and part of what or part of the argument the story gives. It's not that idealism is bad; it's the struggle is being able to hold on to your idealism. 
Well, I think also she doesn't want people to be the way she wants, a particular way she wants them. She just wants them to be better than they currently are. Yeah, she doesn't want... <laughs> like, it's a smaller ask. No, yeah, <laughs> Nausicaa doesn't want to change people. She wants them to reach a point of harmony. Mm-hmm. Like, she, she wants them to be able to live as themselves in harmony with the forest. That That mm-hmm. is ultimately her goal. She's not trying to just take them all and say, okay, be better now, and here's my definition of better. Are we going to talk about the forest as a character, the insects, because they're like I, they're kind they're of like central character. So important. Yeah. So do you have? Do you have? I mean, I was only going to continue on the path of the two brothers, insofar as the high priest starts off as idealistic and overshadows his younger brother, who's the actual emperor, until he dies. When he dies, that's supposed to be the emperor's great moment of. Now I'm free. I can do all these things, and I'm unleashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that all fizzles out because he doesn't—he does not even have the idealism or the drive of his brother to back up any of his plans. His—he just basically has no notion of a future for himself or humanity at that point. His whole thing is he wants power for its own sake, but he has no vision beyond that, mm-hmm. and. I think the narrative kind of in a very tongue-in-cheek way shows that. It's like, okay, he wants power for its own sake, and now he's got nothing. Well, he gets it, but he can't do yeah, anything it's, with it. it, it it's, wor- it's worthless once he has it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just talking about the brothers is just illustrative of a broader approach in Miyazaki to cultures in Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, because nominally the Doric principalities are supposed to be the enemy, we always see Kushana and the Toromekian Empire and its allies fighting against the Doric Principalities, and the ruling caste of the Doric Principalities is experimenting and doing terrible things, and ends up bringing about a Daika show, which we will talk about and define a little bit later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh but within the Doric Principalities, Nausicaa meets so many people who are fundamentally just trying to get by or are trying to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. The Doric Principalities isn't a great place to do that, per se. Yeah. (laughs) But that is an accident of birth and culture as opposed to an inherent evil Mm -hmm. that is intrinsic to the culture that they're in. And that's one actually, that's one really good thing about this story as well, is it acknowledges that good people don't come from any one place. Right. Um, You get a lot of, I mean, the Western world is especially bad for this, namely the United States. You get this notion that there's a good set of values and anyone who doesn't follow those values is evil. Right. That's very, that's a very common theme in Western pop culture. I think that's a common theme in lots of places that have conflict. It it is, for sure. (laughs) I know Western pop culture better, so I can draw the parallels there. Um, but this story doesn't take that approach. It doesn't say that, you know, there is one good group and one bad group. It, it acknowledges that there's good and bad everywhere and from with every from everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that brings us into world building and just the complexity of the various cultures and societies that we come across in Nausicaa. And another aspect of the world building is a giant piece of the world of Nausicaa, of the Valley of the Wind, which is the Sea of Corruption. Yeah. Which is a big... So have at it, Marie. It's a big fungal forest. The world is a petri dish and we are living on the rim. <laughs> um, 
uh, the the because this the sea of corruption, which is not a sea, it's it's a bunch of fungi, giant fungi that are tree like, and insects. So there's this kind of like we know that there's the seven days of fire. There's some kind of fallout, like literally from that. And then the sea of corruption sprang up. And at the beginning of the story, it seems like this is like some sort of mutant forest from that. That it's just an unfortunate thing that happened around this time. Um, and the omu are creatures, or uh, and other large insects that like, um, they have. They all have like a, there's a couple that, ha- that get pretty cool names throughout, but the omu is the only one we'll probably mention specifically right now. I like the long, skinny ones that have rings all They're kind of like dragon yeah. things. Yeah. Uh, those ones are my favorite. I'm like, that's co- those are just cool looking. <laughs> and kind of pretty. Um, but anyway. Um, so the sea, the sea of Corruption is actually like a three-layered event. And what you discover when you go, when the, the Gnosica and a couple other characters go into the forest, or at various times they go into, they go into the forest, um, the miasma is actually only present on the upper level, and when you go lower down it's not there quite so much but also the miasma is less the more deeper you go into the forest and the forest itself is uh, becoming petrified the idea being that these are actually fungi that are recycling out the uh, polluting stuff from the seven days of fire and then becoming petrified and just turning it into inert organic or even actually inorganic matter at this point so it can just go back in the center of the forest, there's basically a pure space now that's sort of been cleaned out. Um, there's a deep irony about that cleanliness <laughs> that, we'll get, that I'll get to in a minute. Um, but at the edge, then, uh, the Valley of the Wind is a little precarious place because there's always a breeze from the sea that blows the miasma back towards the forest, so people are able to survive on that little piece of land that's not yet in the Sea of Corruption. But there's the implication that it's going to be because the population is generally down. Like, it's at a negative reproductive rate. Like, uh, there's a point where, like, Nazga, I think, had seven elder siblings that all died because of just the amount of, like, poison around in the air. So, you know, things are not great. It's a, it, it is a life of chronic disease and early death in, the, in this universe. But also flying things. And um, the Obu sense in the world that there's a conflict. At first you're kind of like not certain what this conflict is. You think it's the Omuar responding because they've been attacked by people, which they do respond to. Like, if you attack an insect, you're going to have this whole kind of like telekinetic horde will descend upon you if, if there's violence. They're sort of an- they're, they're anti-human violence, I would say. All insects in the kingdom. And anti-the forest being attacked. Sort of like the whole force and the insects function as one kind of organism in response to insults. But then you discover that there's um, the Dorok Empire has uh, meddled with the genetic code for some of the fungi, and this has resulted in basically a, 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 a mutation of a giant slime mold-like thing, although it moves quite quickly. <laughs> so more like a slime mold in time-lapse <laughs> um, speed. And uh, that has, then they lose control of that because there's, a, there's the implication of you shouldn't mess with these fundamental points of nature. That is how humanity got to where it was. And, that's, and that, that, that was going to happen was somehow sensed by the giant insects and the forest itself, probably. And that unleashes the Daikai show that you mentioned before, which is where there's a big migration of insects. 
and they basically migrate out to where the giant slime mold event occurs or ends up occurring so that they can bring the sea of corruption there and the spores of their body, which will then um, go through the process of polluting uh, or getting rid of the pollution and getting solving this problem through just like a succession and, and switch of ecology of this thing. So the Daikai Show is just this big pseudopod of the sea of corruption sticking out but th- through the vehicle of the insects. And they all die in that process because the insects are not really individuals. They're more like parts of the Sea of Corruption. And the Sea of Corruption kind of becomes its own being then in the story that has its motives and actually has the telos of, of you know, fixing the world, of purifying it. Well, there, like you said, there's a notion at the beginning that the Sea of Corruption is... So this like horrible toxic environment but as you pointed out mm-hmm. it's not actually toxic it's purifying the toxins in the soil and that's where mm-hmm. the poisons in it come from mm-hmm. and um yeah like you said right like the whole point of it is that our this is very much a point of the book is that nature finds a way mm-hmm. if i may Put it in so trite away. Except, well. except it sort of has it. Except it sort <laughs> it of has it. Because yeah. the final revelation, because so Nausicaa gets, there's two things. Nausicaa does like a, a spirit quest where she basically, you know, goes out in the astral plane with another uh, member of the, of the forest people who live deep in the forest. And they go and they see the central land where there's like regular life, like deer and trees and grass and butterflies and all mm-hmm. the regular kind of stuff. So they go there in spirit form and she can see that there's this purified land. You find out later that humans cannot actually inhabit that space physically. They respond to that purified space, actually much the same way they respond to the sea of corruption itself, which is that they just die in that environment. So the reason for that, it's explained near the end. After the seven days of fire, when the sea of corruption was unleashed and all this other stuff to purify the land, human genetics were altered slightly so that they could survive in this new world. Um, it's even pointed out, it's like, how do you think you survive in the Sea of Corruption with just a tiny little mask, right? Like, it's so much pollution, so much toxicity. They should basically be wearing, like, full hazmat suits, but they don't need to. And so the implication is that humans have been altered so much to survive in this new environment that they aren't actually able to return to the old one. And it's learned that the whole Sea of Corruption was an intentional act. It was itself genetically created as to, to fix the problems of the seven days of fire. And this is the final act that I was circling around so much right at the beginning, is yeah. that Nausicaa comes to meet the, like, intelligence of some kind of, like, organic computer or mass knowledge group thing that is holding the technology and knowledge for when the purification process is going to be done. The plan being that the Sea of Corruption will sweep over the world, and then the, I think the people held within there will be able to come out was is the idea and the yes there are pod people inside of this crypt the crypt of shua which is the last holdout for the civilization that preceded Mm -hmm. the seven days of fire Uh, the way that nausicaa deals with it is actually a really beautiful demonstration of all these elements of a story coming together because at this point we know that the sea of corruption was man-made and her agent of judgment is another man-made superhuman force 
which is the god warrior, <laughs> who now views her as its mother because she has the controlling, the control stone that brings it into consciousness. And it becomes these two elements, the two monsters from before, coming together and turning out to be from the same source mm -hmm. at the end of the narrative. Which, this is extremely difficult for an author to pull off. Mm -hmm. Well, it's... Like, you read this, and it's like, that is a narrative trick that I have not seen yeah. very many people succeed well, at. It's, it's, these two, it's these two last aspects of the old world coming together and destroying one another, mm -hmm. is ultimately what it is. Well, and this is where it's, where it's sort of like, I've left with the, dis, with the disquiet, because it's like, there was this plan. It's actually not a bad plan. The world's being destroyed. We come up with this long, complex way to clean it, and then we can come back. Nausicaa says, fuck your plan, because your plan involves killing individuals that I care about. Well, and so then she destroys it. Well, so she destroys the, this, the Crypt of Shua and all that was contained in, in it. Well, so not, in Nausicaa's defense, though, like the counter-argument she raises is, you were the ones who destroyed the world. You reshaped it solely so that you could come back and do the exact same things over. Mm-hmm. Why should we, the people who've had to inherit it and live in it, simply be discarded? I mean, you f nature has found a way amidst this to continue in some form. It'll find a way again. Nausicaa's big, I guess her thesis, if you will, is that it's not so much important that humanity continues so much as some form of life does. Nausicaa views humanity as part of the world, and if our role in, as part of the world is to go extinct, so be it. It's not for us to decide, especially not those of us who've been gone for a thousand years, to decide mm -hmm. what should happen to the world. Well, she, and I, I, don't necessarily, I don't disagree with Nausicaa, really, I should say, just to be clear. Um, but it's all, because it's I think her view is, it's, is, is that she's anti-fatalism. Like, she doesn't want to have some pre-written thing dictating what people can do particularly since it's engendered so much suffering from stuff from the technology from the crypt and all this kind of thing um and she's like and she makes the point that it's not impossible that humans could become able to occupy that space like that's not just because it's been written in in this way like you don't know what's going mm -hmm. to what's going to happen in my notes, this part of the discussion is titled "That Ending," though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it is, and it's, it is great because the Torumekian Tor Emperor is there. He's like, I like this Nausicaa girl, and he goes down with the ship in this wonder. And you, you kind of go, man, this guy that's a also a Genesis is so much problem. I end up liking, like, you end up liking, or at the very least, pitying every character in here. There's no one that you that you like, and like he doesn't write villains. Well, I, I think a big thing about the ending, because like it, it is very complex, and in some ways it, it is kind of shocking, and it does feel like Nausicaa has condemned humanity to extinction. But on the flip side, there is a hope in what she says. She, she you know, it's it is this notion that we might be able to survive as part of this natural order, and should we really try to force it? And, and I think a large reason that it's written the way it is is it is a complex ending because it has to be mm -hmm. right after everything that happens there are no simple questions in the book why should there be a simple answer mm -hmm. yeah it's also conveying a very big message in of itself 
about history and how much we are beholden to what has been set in the past. Mm -hmm. Because with the Crypt of Shua, what is happening is the old civilization set this haven up that reveals pieces of technology and information and knowledge slowly, one line at a time, translating and figuring out what one of those lines on the crypt even says takes like a whole priesthood (laughs) to work with these secrets and bring them out. And it's very much like an almost evil version of Asimov's foundation. (laughs) That's actually a great analogy, yes. (laughs) It's doing the same thing where, like Harry Seldon's psychohistory, there is a path that was predicted, and whoever controls the crypt to have the benefits of the technology that the crypt provides, like eternal life, etc., etc., you have to do what the crypt says and when i say what the crypt says i mean that literally mm-hmm. <laughs> like there is an entity living there who is controlling these things mm-hmm. and when nausicaa confronts that entity what's happening is jesus the entity flips has... the tables of the temple <laughs> yeah there's this there's this path that we've been following for a thousand years and what has been happening as a result of the path set out by the Cryptoshua is Daika shows. Yeah. The ultimate goal is to cleanse the entire earth, which means creating more and more Daika shows. More, and, and more and more suffering, ultimately. <laughs> yes. And the end result of that is that human- the humanity that Nausicaa is a part of won't survive that process. We already know that. Mm-hmm. They're just cleaning up the world and making it ready for the previous civilizations leftovers who are in these pods, Mm -hmm. these eggs that are in the Cryptoshua to colonize and repopulate. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, they get to populate a paradise. Do they? And do you get to sacrifice all the people in the interim generations to do that? Mm -hmm. And there isn't a right answer. No. No, I... I, To be clear. No, there's no right answer. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think... um... (laughs) I think Nausicaa makes the choice she makes for two reasons. First off, there needed to be a decision to end the story. Um, yeah, because Nausicaa's aware she's in a story. Well, <laughs> I don't say from a purely like writing mechanic perspective, but I mean, obviously, I, I think it's fairly obvious that Nausicaa would make the decision that preserves the people who are there now. Nausicaa doesn't feel any kind of obligation to a, fa- a civilization that's been dead a thousand plus years when there are people right now who need her help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do I sacrifice myself and the people around me for the ideals of the past? Well, and that's, Which... and that's her, her point, is that she's against the ecological argument. She goes, she's, in, she's concerned with every individual. It's like she says that. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, it's like, there, there exist individuals in this world who are building and who have built lives now. And I don't even mean just human individuals. The Omu are part of that. And she, and she says that she views like the Omu as being like almost ideal organisms in a way. Um, like they're very different from humans, but she, there's a lot that she admires about them. And she's accused of that at one point, that she cares more about them than she does about people or humans. Um, but I think it's because she has like equal concern for like creatures that are non-human animals as well as like human animals so 
Yeah, so what I'm trying to reconcile in this discussion is how I had the impression from my first reading that the messages in Nausicaa were simple ones beyond me just thinking and connecting it to Princess Mononoke and Miyazaki's other works. But I don't feel like Nausicaa at the end of it has the same message anymore. I think you're probably just older. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, say. that part too. A little older, a little wiser, yeah. <laughs> Also, a second read-through gives you a more chance to, like, see things just beyond. Like, this would also reward rereading. I was about to say, the the definition of good literature that I'm most fond of is Mm -hmm. it rewards Mm rereading. And Nausicaa fits that to a T. Sorry, like some of the other books we've talked about on the podcast, it is an incredibly complex work that deals with vast and complex topics in vast and complex ways. And the beauty is in that complexity. But at the same time, it's never presented in such a way where you can't understand it. Like, it is, it's a wonderfully told story, but it's also a wonderful collection of thought. This is the most ambitious act of storytelling in science fiction I have encountered up to this point. Flat out. (laughs) And that's high praise coming from you. Like, I can draw comparisons to Dune, A Canticle for Leibowitz, others that play with the same themes, but even in those works, I don't think anything has explored those topics to this depth. Mm-hmm. And the flip, the flip side of that as well, I can think of numerous works in science fiction and fantasy that extend to the same length, but say absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh like yeah, there, there, <laughs> we got lots of those. Yeah, well, there, there are numerous examples of series that are long running because they're cash grabs, not because they had a lot to say. This is the unfortunately rare exception where it's long because it needs to be to actually address everything it wants to address. Mm-hmm. And in that comes my contention that I feel Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind only really gets talked about in relation to anime, manga, and comic communities, Mm -hmm. and it really needs to be discussed in the wider history of science fiction and fantasy as a field. Oh, for sure. Like, there are much worse, well, there are much less thoughtful books than this that get much more critical discussion Mm -hmm. to the depth of literary criticism. And this really deserves to be discussed and considered at that level Mm -hmm. uh, as just one, as I said, one of the most ambitious pieces of science fiction to ever Mm -hmm. (laughs) come out to this point. Mm -hmm. Can we expect expect anything less of Miyazaki than that? Well, you know, he's famous for making great movies and (laughs) being a very thoughtful person. I still did not expect this out of him or anyone really <laughs> he also made porco rosso which i haven't seen but porco rosso is great yeah i know <laughs> it's not as great as this no, it's a different kind of great i'm sure <laughs> but you know what i mean right well, so I, I think i think that's that's a wonderful thing about miyazaki's body of work is mm-hmm. that you can get something that's kind of again i haven't seen porco rosso yet it's on the list but you, you can get some you can get things like um, My Neighbor Totoro is a good example. Parts of it are lighthearted and silly and just a lot of fun, but parts of it are also quite thoughtful and emotional. 
and Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, it does. It, it's kind of the same thing. There are parts of it that are a little on the lighter side that are kind of fun and happy and interesting, but then there's a massive depth of thought to it. And to have those two, like to have such a wide spectrum of things included in your work, it, it, it's a sign of a very skilled artist for sure. That is a great note to end on. <laughs> so we are all in awe of <laughs> Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Mm-hmm. I think you can only get it in the two hardcover slipcase edition yeah. now. Maybe you can get the seven volume edition used. Yeah. Whatever. This belongs in everyone's library. Yeah. Just also uh, get just also get a lectern that you can read it on, I guess. <laughs> it is really heavy. Uh, and I did not find yeah. a way that I could balance it and not get a crick in my neck while I was reading. Uh, because I've been reading it for so long because it's so good. I encourage everyone who's read it, listen to this podcast, go out and convince as many people as you can to get into this. This is deserving of all the praise you could possibly heap on it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we can all feel dispirited about any of us ever achieving those dizzying (laughs) heights. I mean, it's not about that, though. No. (laughs) See the pinnacle of human art and achievement. Yeah. We found it, Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind. You can find much lesser art and achievements at my blog, onelesssketch.wordpress.com, where I have previous episodes of this podcast that you can listen to, and a bunch of articles about that. Nothing as good as this. Find you, Marie? Hey, don't be so mean to Ursa our Linguincast, also. I mean, nearly every podcast for like, this is amazing! As you say, Book of the New Sun comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's lots of great yeah. stuff out there. This is different. We're just very enamored of Nausicaa at this time. And you can find me at shrinkandexpand.com. Someday that will update. I have a plan for when it's going to start happening. As, as it, my thesis guy is like, really done. <laughs> anyway. And I still don't really have any significant online presence. Maybe that'll change one day, maybe it won't. Considering the state of my social media feeds right now, probably a good thing not to jump in. (laughs) Thanks for listening. This podcast is recorded irregularly. We basically need to become passionate about something enough to make us want to talk about it and inflict our thoughts on everyone else. So we'll be back again sometime. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.